Let's open the Word of God to Romans chapter 16. I'm thankful to be a member of this church with all the men that have already participated in the worship this morning, the prayers in the back, all that's happened here out of this pulpit. You should be thankful to be a member of this church. We are blessed abundantly to have it in America, to have the Word of God in our language perfectly preserved for us, to have such peace and prosperity, to have such protection and luxury, to have such an understanding and conviction. What are we lacking except our own conviction and commitment and devotion to all that the Lord is and has done for us and shown us? The only part lacking is ours because He's done all that He's ever done for anyone else and done more for us. Romans chapter 16, and we shall bring this epistle to a close. I read to you verses 21 through 27. Timotheus, my work fellow, and Lucius, and Jason, and Sosipater, my kinsman, salute you. I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, Salute you in the Lord. Gaius, mine host, and of the whole church, saluteth you. Erastus, the chamberlain of the city, saluteth you. And Quartus, a brother. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Amen. Now, to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery which was kept secret since the world began but now is made manifest and by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the everlasting God made known to all nations for the obedience of faith to God, only wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. 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 Whether it's the beginning of this epistle or the ending of this epistle, it's a wonderful epistle. It is set first of the Pauline epistles to get our attention and for us to go through it first before we find the others if we were to read in the order that God in His providence gave us His Word. We have had so many good things already. I want to go through these verses rather quickly. If you need more, then wait a few hours and look at an outline and go through them more slowly, because there will be more than I say. But let me say a few things about these verses. Timotheus, my work fellow. Paul had been commending and had commended a great number of his friends that were in the church at Rome, and we can read about them in the first 16 verses of this chapter. But those salutations and greetings and commendations were from Paul himself to them. Now, there were other ministerial helpers with Paul, and there were some other brothers there that were more closely attached to Paul than ordinary church members, and it's their turn. 
This last chapter is a hodgepodge of different things that are being said. There's these salutations of 16 verses. Then he gets rather serious for four verses about marking and avoiding. Then he allows his friends to express their salutations. And then he closes with one of his uh, impressive benedictions, doxologies, blessings, anthems, whatever you want to call it. So let's look at these. It's the turn of Paul's favorite understudy and a preacher that he considered to be like a son with the father, though there was no relationship. Timotheus, my work fellow. It's time for him to salute the church there in Rome and the brethren there. Timothy was a great young minister. We have two pastoral epistles in his name that the apostle wrote to other ministers for the last 2,000 years because of young Timothy's faithfulness. This young minister didn't want to be left out of knowing about faithful believers and brethren in the shadow of the pagan Roman capital. He wanted to salute them as well as did Paul. It marks true Christians that everyone professing the name of Christ in the true faith should be honored. Whenever we meet a true Christian that loves the Lord in truth, like we heard and read from Psalm 145 this morning, we want to salute and greet them. The sons of God are blood brothers. By predestinated adoption and the shedding of blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are tighter than any earthly brothers can ever be. There's no comparison between human DNA and the Savior's redeeming blood that is over us and around us and sprinkled upon the book of life that will save us in the end when we're formally announced as his brethren before the world, and he is not ashamed to call us brethren. We should never be ashamed to call others brethren. The Apostle Paul exhorted Timothy with the words that I used to open our service this morning, not to be ashamed of me, his prisoner. Though one of our brethren would be in prison, though one of our brethren would be martyrs like Big Henry, though one of our brethren would be beheaded, as we heard from Brother Daniel, We should never be ashamed of them, but want to send our greetings, our encouragement, and our commendation in the gospel. In cases like this, it doesn't matter that we've never met them. Who cares if we've met someone? Their names and our names are in the book of life. They love the same Lord Jesus Christ and are redeemed with the same blood. We are very close to them. And we should be able to salute them and think about them, pray about them, and commit them to the Lord. And so... Timotheus does that. My work fellow. Paul kindly honored him, didn't he? To have the Apostle Paul say that Timothy, a young man, was my work fellow. Nobody could keep up with the Apostle Paul. And to say my work fellow was pretty nice for the young man. And so we have these words, Timotheus, my work fellow. Then there's Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my kinsmen. And we don't know how close that relationship was. If the apostle is just appealing to the fact that they were fellow Israelites, or if they were of the same tribe, or if they happened to be cousins, or it doesn't tell us in the Word of God, although we can read about all three of these men, there isn't any necessary reason for us to think that Lucius is Luke, though some have done so. There is Lucius of Cyrene that can be read about in Acts chapter 13 and verse 1. There's Jason that was Paul's host in the church at Thessalonica. And there is Sosipater of Berea that accompanied the apostle. 
You know, when you go to Acts chapter 20 and you find Sopater instead of Sosipater, you think, well, that must be somebody else. If you found that somebody was called Robert Borowski, but he was also called Rob Borowski, Bob Borowski, Bobby Borowski, Robbie Borowski, do you have a problem? Okay, good. We shouldn't have a problem with the Word of God. Their names were formed just like ours, and we use variants of them. And the Lord gives us an example. Do you know the Lord's nickname of the most holy and grandest sacred tetragrammaton in the universe? Jah. Shortened. Short form. I am. Rather than the full Jehovah, I am that I am. And so we have these, and you can find them elsewhere in Scripture. But notice again, it's a salutation from these four men working with Paul. They wanted to get in. Paul, Paul. Can we have a verse to be able to commend these Romans that they're good Christians? We want them to know that we care about them. We want to salute them because Christians should salute one another. We are a separate holy nation in the earth. We are a separate holy people in the earth. We have blood ties. We have one God, one faith, one baptism around the whole earth. And we should want to salute each other. And so we have a holy example given to us. Verse 22. I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, salute you in the Lord. Now when it says, I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, that is not another name for Paul. And there isn't another author or writer, I should say, to the book of Romans. The Apostle Paul, for whatever reason, didn't write some of his epistles. He had secretaries do it for him. He would dictate, either in a poor hand or from his mouth. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer, is what David said about inspiration upon him in Psalm 45 and verse 1. And then these men would write it down, and so in this case it was Tertius. Now, when another man would write an epistle, if you look at 1 Corinthians 16.21, the apostle would put his salutation upon that epistle so that they would know its authenticity. 1 Corinthians 16.21, the salutation of me, Paul, with mine own hand. I'm closing this epistle out with my salutation, and his salutation is of the words that are found in verse 23, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Those are Paul's special words that identify that he wrote the epistle. You can look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, and if we look at it now, we won't have to refer to it later. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 17, as he closes out that epistle. 2 Thessalonians three seventeen, the salutation of Paul with mine own hand. Someone else wrote the epistle. The salutation of Paul with mine own hand, which is the token in every epistle. So I write the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Most important thing you can ever bless someone with is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the apostle would close out his epistles that way, in his own hand, confirming the authenticity and genuineness of the epistle that someone else had written. And in this particular case, back to Romans 16.22, it was Tertius. I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, salute you in the Lord. Now, in this particular case, it says in the Lord, reminding us that our salutations should be first of all and foremost of all in the Lord. It is our bond in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
There are so many differences in this room, it's frightening to think about them. So, I don't. Because the unity that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ should wash all those differences away because none of them matter. All of you and me are wretched sinners deserving of eternal torment. Enemies of the God of heaven saved by the Lord Jesus Christ made His children adopted as His brethren and put together in a church like this according to His own will. And so all those differences should disappear and we should love one another in the Lord. And so Tertius, who was just a secretary that we don't read about anywhere else and who wrote this epistle for Paul, wanted to get in there as well and salute the saints. To salute them in the Lord. Here's the greeting that's mentioned and identified. Our greatest asset, our greatest bond, our greatest compatibility and whatever else you want to think about is found in our relationship in the Lord Jesus Christ. I salute you in the Lord. Here is how men of God, and I I don't, let me back up. Here is how the people of God have greeted each other in the past. Just turn a few pages in your Bible. Go to Ruth chapter 2, and let's look at a few examples just to remind us of how just a greeting can be an act of worship. Ruth chapter 2. Ruth chapter 2 and verse 4. I've, I've shared this with you before. Boaz and his workers meet each other in the field. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said unto the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered him, The Lord bless thee. There's a good illustration right there of the second person pronouns. The why pronoun being plural because it was reapers. And Boaz being singular is a thee. There it is. The Lord be with you. Everything done in the name of the Lord Jehovah. As the Lord liveth. When they would make an oath. When they would greet each other. The Lord be with you. And they answered him. The Lord bless thee. It's not hey. That's what they were reaping. So they didn't talk about hey. They talked about the God of heaven. Hey. How are you? You know we just have ridiculous things that we say. How are you? Nobody care. Nobody's asking how you're doing. That the words do not imply that at all. How are you? It's just a hoot. Like a hey. Like a hello. Like worthless. Compared to this. When you get to bless God by including Him in your greeting. Look at Psalm 35. Psalm 35. Tertius saluted the Roman saints in the Lord. Psalm 35 and verse 27. Let them shout for joy and be glad that favor my righteous cause. Yea, let them say continually, let the Lord be magnified, which hath pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. I like that one. Let the Lord be magnified. There's praise occurring even in a greeting. And David's wanting those that favor his righteous cause to always talk that way around him because that's the kind of language he wanted to hear. Look at Psalm 70 and verse 4. Let the Lord be magnified. I like that one. I I hope you like it. This is a very, very similar verse. Let all those that seek thee rejoice and be glad in thee. And let such as love thy salvation say continually, let God be magnified. 
That's just a sober, reverent way of addressing each other when we, instead of saying hello or how are you, to say, let God be magnified. And then there's 129 in verse 8. Psalm 129 in verse 8. Now this is a common condemnation of some that didn't greet properly, so it is formed in the negative. Neither do they which go by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Look, there's a couple of greetings given as an illustration that godly people talk this way. It's made as an assumption because the description here is of wicked people that don't do that. But we ought to. And so it's a salutation in the Lord, and I share those with you when we read that 22nd verse in Romans 16, and we're going back there. I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, salute you, and it tells us what the salutation is based on in the Lord. We have one God, one faith, one Lord, as we can read in Ephesians chapter 4, and we should let that be known to one another to encourage each other. Gaius, mine host, and of the whole church, saluteth you. There's a number of men by this name found in the New Testament, but this particular one was known for his hospitality. So was the one in the third epistle of John. Gaius, mine host, and of the whole church, he'll host anyone. He'll host everyone, anytime. Gaius, mine host, and of the whole church, saluteth you. It's such a wonderful exhortation to us to be given to hospitality. Romans chapter 12 tells us to be given to hospitality, addicted to it, prone, inclined to it, needing to do it, hospitality, having people in your home, taking people out and employing other servants to deliver them a meal. And when you do that, your friends don't really count. Your friends in the church don't count as hospitality. God isn't moved, impressed, nor does he take note of it. He takes note of it when you do it to the least of these, my brethren. He takes note of it that when you make a feast, you don't call your brethren. You don't call your friends. You call the lame, the halt, and the blind. Luke chapter 14. And then you will get a reward in the great day of judgment for being given to hospitality. Gaius is stuck in here by the Holy Spirit of God. And Paul wants it noted about him what was good about his life. What was good about Timotheus? He was a work fellow. What was good about Tertius? He was a secretary. What was good about Gaius? He was known for hospitality to everyone. Gaius, mine host and of the whole church saluteth you. Erastus, the chamberlain of the city, saluteth you. To be a chamberlain is to be the treasurer. What a privilege for a man who is found in a couple of other places serving the Apostle Paul that was the treasurer of a city as pagan and as prosperous as the city of Corinth. Praise his name. What a great example. Erastus, the chamberlain of the city, not a chamberlain, the chamberlain of the city saluteth you. So this man shows us that a Christian can be in politics, well, as long as you're a Christian like Erastus. Those people who make the politics more than their service to the kingdom of heaven are no good to either. Erastus You can find him in the pages of Scripture serving the Apostle Paul, and yet he had earned the confidence of that city to be their treasure. Thank you, Lord, for such a good example. And then we have in this 23rd verse, and Quartus, a brother. I love this expression. It's my favorite of them all so far. 
and Cortus a brother. Because it goes back to what I've been trying to say to you. What makes this man so special to be included in the Bible? What makes this man so special that he gets in this epistle to the capital of the empire? He was not a work fellow. He wasn't a kinsman. He wasn't known for hospitality. He wasn't a secretary like Tertius. He wasn't an entertainer of guests. And he wasn't a political office holder. So what does he have to get in here? He's a brother. Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me, saith the Savior. In Matthew 25. I love this little expression that Quartus gets in the Word of God for being a brother. And the Apostle Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, focuses on that point about him and nothing else. And so, if there are times when you're wondering if you're very important to God because you're not a secretary to an apostle and you don't have the means to be known like others in the church could be for hospitality and you don't hold a political office and you're not really a ministerial work fellow, but you're a brother. And he is not ashamed to call us brethren, even if that's all you have going for you, is a brother. I like Cortes. And I hope that it's comforting to you. Verse 24, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Paul's token salutation. And so, he closes out right here. This is, this is his salutation. He's given it to us in verse 20. And then he gave it to us again right here in verse 24. And then, like Paul is prone to do at times, he just bursts forth into a doxology of blessing and praising the Most High God. And so, we come to that. Much could be said. Could could we preach a sermon or two on the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? Be with you all. And amen. Yes, we could, but not today. And not in this time through Romans. Verse 25. And I love the first word. Now. There was just an amen. The apostle is saying, I have cleared the deck. I spent 16 verses telling all my friends in Rome how much I love you and care for you and remember your works in the kingdom of heaven. I have given you four verses warning you about marking and avoiding those that cause divisions and offenses among you in Rome. I have let my companions work their way into the text by giving you four verses from them. And I've closed it out. Now I get to bless God. And so he does. If you read Paul carefully, like turn back just a few pages to Romans chapter 11, the last four verses. Romans chapter 11. This is an example of the apostle Verse 33, oh, oh, the depth, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, exclamation point. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out, exclamation point. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counselor, or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again, for of him and through him. And to Him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. 
And then he goes on and continues his letter with chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. This is Paul's style. You know what? It ought to be our style. Now, I don't think that Eric was privy to what I did in my office this week. But Eric brings up Psalm 145 for you this morning and talks about perpetual praise and wanting to praise and using our mouth to praise God. And here we find, as Paul closes out this epistle, he clears the deck. I'm done with you Romans, but I'm not done with the Lord. Now, let me talk about what I enjoy talking about the most. And that should be us talking about the Lord. Yes, there's a place for us to salute. There is a place for us to commend. And I have taught you that. There is a place to warn about false brethren coming. But once we get over the protection of our church and the love of the brethren, let's lift our eyes heavenward, our voice heavenward, our heart heavenward, and praise the God of heaven. And so the apostle does it. Now to him. This ain't Phoebe. And this ain't the brethren in Rome. Now to him. And very briefly, because I want you to just to see the forest without getting tied up in any of these wonderful phrases that while he's blessing God, are teaching the Romans and bringing to a conclusion this epistle where there was great persecution from the outside to unsettle them. There was great strife on the inside between the Jews and the Gentiles And he has dealt with it more than any other epistle. He has established for eight chapters that Jews and Gentiles are condemned and guilty before God and justified by the blood of Jesus Christ only. He has shown in chapters 9 through 11 that Israel may have been the people of God in the past, but now they have been broken off from that kingdom. And Gentiles have been grafted in. In chapters 12 through 16, he has described how a church ought to get along by its members esteeming each other more important than themselves. And how to handle Christian liberty, a whole chapter plus half of the next one dedicated to that subject. Do you understand the effort that the apostle has made to bring this church to unity and peace and love for each other? Right. So, while we bless God... Remember what he's saying. Because this is the climax of the epistle. This is the doxology, the benediction, the anthem, the hymn of praise. But yet in its words, our reminder that God is able to keep you Romans together and make you a great church. Now to him that is of power to establish you. Now to him that is of power to establish you. These believers in the capital of the pagan empire were loved by God and called to be saints. The first eight verses of the first chapter tell us about them. And God had chosen them, saved them, and put them together in a church by His providential dealings with men. And now He was of power to be able to establish them. To establish something is to settle it and put it and place it in one place and then settle it into a solid position that will not move. And Paul is saying, now unto him, and though he's blessing God, he is appealing to God and describing God as the one that is able to keep the Romans put together. 
When the Apostle Paul left the elders at Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, he did not say, you are able to keep yourselves together. He said, I commend you unto the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them that are sanctified in me. It's by God's power. And so we have it here. Now to Him that is of power. Does God have enough power to keep the Romans together? Yes, He does. He is of almighty power. There is no limiting to His power. There is no hindering of His power. There is no questioning of His power. I love our brother David on his deathbed. Listen to these words. Wherefore David blessed the Lord before all the congregation. And David said, Blessed be thou, Lord God of Israel our Father, forever and ever. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heaven and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come of thee, and thou reignest over all, and in thine hand is power and might. And in thine hand it is to make great and to give strength unto all. Now therefore, our God, we thank thee and praise thy glorious name. And so the Apostle Paul says now to him that is of power to establish you. God was able to keep that church together and make them into a church like they should be after he had spent 16 chapters dealing with it from every angle to provide them the doctrinal practical foundation and parameters by which they could be a peaceful, wonderful, united body of Jesus Christ. He says, now God is able by His power to establish you according to my gospel. Notice that it is my gospel. Is that arrogance? It's not our gospel. It's not the true gospel. It's not Christ's gospel here. It's Paul's gospel. There were a variety of men preaching Christ's gospel, but none of them preached it like Paul preached the gospel. My gospel, what I wrote in this epistle, what I wrote in the Galatians epistle, my gospel. We are Pauline Christians. When we say we're Bible Christians, if somebody wanted a further definition, we would say we are Pauline Bible Christians because we understand the Bible and practice the Bible according to Paul's gospel. Be therefore followers of me, Paul said, as I am a follower of Christ. If we were to follow Christ, 40 days after you women give birth to a boy baby, you need to be offering some sacrifices for your purification. Takes 80 days to get purified if you have a girl baby. See, we don't follow Jesus Christ, nor his mother, nor Joseph, his perceived legal father. We follow Paul. Because we're Gentiles and we're not under the law. So we follow Paul. So he calls it my gospel so that God has the power to establish you as a Roman church in the shadow of the empire according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. I have preached Jesus Christ to you. Keep Him the preeminent object of your faith, your worship, and your church life together. Because my gospel exalts the Lord Jesus Christ. I do not add wood, hay, or stubble to the foundation that has been laid. I lay gold, silver, and precious stones on that foundation of Jesus Christ. And so the Romans were to emphasize the Lord Jesus Christ 
by whose obedience they were made righteous according to Paul's gospel. And Romans chapter 5 is clearer, plainer, more powerful and definitive than any other chapter in the Bible about how we're saved. By the second Adam, we are saved in the same manner and way in which we were condemned. We were condemned by the disobedience of one man because we stood in a relationship, a legal relationship with Adam that when he sinned, we sinned in him. Even babies are condemned to hell without a Savior because of Adam's sin. It's all in Romans 5. But as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So, by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. And so we exalt the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior and according to Paul's Gospel. And this preaching of Jesus Christ that I have preached to you in Rome that I have preached to the churches of Galatia, that I have preached in Corinth, that I have preached in Athens, that I have preached in Thessalonica, that I have preached in Philippi, that I have preached in Antioch of Pisidia, that I have preached the world over, the Roman world, Gentiles. This preaching of Jesus Christ, according to my gospel, my gospel is to Gentiles. The gospel of Peter, James, and John are to the Jews. They are ministers of the circumcision, just like Jesus was a minister of the circumcision. But as chapter 15 taught us, I was chosen to preach all the way to Illyricum, the gospel of Jesus Christ to Gentiles. And so now he brings in, while he's blessing God, that God is of power to establish them according to his gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, because that is according to the revelation of the mystery. There is a mystery. It was not seen clearly. It was very obscure. And most men did not understand it that God was going to take the kingdom of God away from the Jews as the predominant citizens of that kingdom and give it to Gentiles. Paul's the first one to tell us about it. Paul's the first one to know the details of it. And there are sections of Paul's epistles where he deals at depth, at length, with the fact that God chose him to know more about that mystery than anyone else. Ephesians chapter 2 and 3 is the lengthiest passage in the Bible. But here he's appealing to it. He's already taught us about it in chapter 15 that God chose him. Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret since the world began. Abraham didn't see this thing clearly. Isaac and Jacob didn't see it. Noah, Methuselah, or Enoch didn't see it clearly, that down through time, 4,000 years after creation, the Lord Jesus Christ and His predecessor, John the Baptist, and His favorite, most powerful apostle, Paul, was going to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. It was a mystery. It was hidden. It was kept secret since the world began. Look at Ephesians chapter 3, just so I can make a connection here. Ephesians chapter 3, and show you that this wonderful thing about you as a Gentile being alongside David, Moses, and the great saints of old, whose spirits are in heaven made perfect, we're fellow citizens with them. Look at verse 8, unto me, Ephesians 3, 8, unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given. 
that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men see, all those nations of Gentiles, make all kinds of men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. He said it's a long sentence. Listen, I only read part of it. Yes, it's a long sentence. But it's about a mystery that was kept secret from the foundation of the world that was given to the Apostle Paul, less than least of all saints. But Paul knew more about it than anyone else, and he revealed that mystery, and he got to preach it to Gentiles. Where was the church of Ephesus? It was in Asia. What's Asia? In those days, it was a province of the Roman Empire, which is now western Turkey. The Gentiles kept secret, but now made manifest. So Paul, Paul is saying, now let me bless God. Let me close out this epistle with a doxology. Now to him that is of power to establish you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret from the foundation of the world. You know, he goes on and describes this in this 25th verse. He is describing everything that I have preached to you in 16 chapters. God is able by his power to unite this church, settle this church, have you agreeing in one doctrine, one practice, overlooking each other's liberties, and being one body for him. Verse 26, though it was kept secret from since the world began, but now is made manifest. It isn't complicated. It isn't obscure. The word manifest is a wonderful word. I love its definition. I don't usually... I mean, the, the Oxford English Dictionary is supposedly the standard of our language. But listen to this definition of the word manifest. You know how I've explained it to you in the past. One of those cargo ships that pulls into Charleston that's 1,200 feet long, and it's, you know, it's got a 1,000 of those railroad cars that, that they can, well, not quite the size of a railroad car, but they can put it on the back of a semi and haul it at a Charleston. If you're ever going down 26 to Charleston, they're just going by you like this all those, uh, you know, cargo containers that are on a cargo ship. But, you know, what in the world's on that cargo ship? You say, what's on there? Well, there's a thousand boxes that you would need to open, and nobody opens them. When they come into a port, they just hand them a piece of paper, and it's called the ship's manifest. And it has an exhaustive list of everything that's in every box. Manifest. Clearly revealed to the eye, mind, or judgment. Open to view or comprehension. Obvious. I love that definition. To make something manifest. That's how I'm supposed to preach. That's how Paul wanted men to pray for him that he would preach. Clearly revealed to the eye, mind, or judgment, open to view or comprehension. Obvious. I want to make it obvious. And the apostle is saying, now it's made obvious. I've explained chapters 9 through 11. I've explained how God has set aside the Jews and brought in the Gentiles. I've explained for eight chapters that it's not the law of Moses. I've taken you back to Abraham. I've shown that Abraham was justified by faith before he was circumcised. Hundreds of years before the law of Moses. I've taught it all. And God's able to establish you according to this secret because it's now made manifest Amen. by my gospel. Whose gospel made it manifest? It was Paul's gospel. Amen. But now is made manifest and by the scriptures of the prophets. Do you know who that made comfortable in the church? 
I want you to follow the, the Jews. Do you know that throughout, turn back one page to Romans 15. Do you remember, do you remember these things? Look, look at Romans 15. Verse 9. Verse 8. Context. Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision. Jesus preached to Jews. That's what that's saying. Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. That's a Jewish verse. And, verse 9, that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy as it is written. So he starts quoting, For this cause I will confess to thee among the Gentiles and sing unto thy name. And again he saith, Rejoice ye Gentiles with his people. And again, Praise the Lord all ye Gentiles and laud him all ye people. And again, Isaiah saith, There shall be a root of Jesse and he that shall rise to reign over the Gentiles in him shall the Gentiles trust. Four quotations from Old Testament prophets that would have comforted the Jews, reminding them that though it was a mystery, because it wasn't plainly clear, plainly exposed to view, it was not obvious yet, there were these prophecies of Gentiles. Gentile prophecy after Gentile prophecy. And so we have verse 26, but now is made manifest, it's obvious now, and by the scriptures of the prophets. Because how did Paul make it so obvious? One of the ways he did it was by pulling those four quotations in from the Old Testament there in chapter 15. When the council of Jerusalem met in Acts 15, and Peter explained about how Cornelius' family was converted, which was a Jewish family's conversion, and then Paul and Barnabas explained what great things God had done among the Gentiles by their ministry, James took up, James the Lord's brother, the head of the church at Jerusalem, took up, and brought the meeting to a conclusion by appealing to Amos chapter 9, saying, Known unto God are all His works from the beginning of the world. He prophesied of this in Amos chapter 9 when he said that the heathen would be used to rebuild the tabernacle of David. Isn't that wonderful? And so the very Jewish scriptures that the Jews trusted in so much had within them a lacing of prophecies about the Gentiles. And so the apostle is appealing to the fact that what God is doing by His power to establish that church in Rome and make it a great church had been prophesied in the Old Testament prophets. So, the Jews in the congregation would have breathed easily if they hadn't been convicted and converted yet, which they should have been. But it's now made manifest and by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the everlasting God. Isn't that a wonderful expression? Something, you, we take it for granted. You know what? Because when you turn left, it's a Gentile. When you turn right in your pew, it's a Gentile. When you, if you, if I were to have you turn around and shake your neighbor's hand, like they do in all the other Mickey Mouse churches in our community, it would be a Gentile. It's a Gentile everywhere. So we don't appreciate this. But if we had been raised a Jew, we would know that we were only God's chosen people. And if we hadn't been raised a Jew, we would know that there was a people on earth that worshipped the Lord Jehovah, and we were not part of them, and we couldn't be part of them, except as an outside proselyte. And we would be in the court of the Gentiles, wishing that we could be in there with the real people of God. And so this was wonderful news. And you know what it's based on? Everything that occurs in this universe, especially pertaining to the religion of Jehovah, is according 
to the commandment of the everlasting God. And that is the foundation for our faith. That is why we talk about the sovereignty of God, because everything happens according to the commandment of the everlasting God. Do you know what dispensationalists say? They say that Jesus Christ tried to offer the kingdom of heaven to the Jews, but they refused it. He was frustrated, and he brought in the church age for 2,000 years. It's blasphemy. James would say, and I'm going to quote it again from Acts 15, known unto God are all His works from the beginning of the world. Brethren, what I just explained, I'm I'm pretending I'm James, at the Council of Jerusalem. Brethren, what I just explained to you from Amos chapter 9, what Peter told us, what Paul told us, it's the fulfillment of Scripture, and it was known unto God from the beginning of the world. And here Paul's words were, by the commandment of the everlasting God. Do Do you know how you're a part of His kingdom? By the commandment of the everlasting God. Do you know why you're here today? Do you know why you get to come to a king's table with a fair on that table better than any earthly king has ever spread for a guest? By the commandment of the everlasting God. Made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. And the Gentiles perk up. They knew that the prophets of the first half of this verse weren't their prophets. They were the Jewish prophets. But then Paul adds in, this commandment of the everlasting God was for this mystery that is now revealed and made manifest to be preached and made known to all nations. It didn't matter what nation you came from. It didn't matter what continent. It didn't matter what color. It didn't matter what race. It didn't matter what tribe. It didn't matter what language from the Tower of Babel. None of that mattered. Made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. Faith that worketh by love and lays hold of the gospel and believes what Paul wrote in this epistle and practices love, charity, kindness, and embraces those on the other side of the aisle Jews and Gentiles embracing each other in the church that was at Rome. So Paul, even in his blessing to God, is preaching his gospel to them again and committing them to the word of his grace and to the commandment of the everlasting God and to the prophets, to the scriptures of the prophets, that it is now made known, it has been a secret, but it is now revealed to all nations, Jews and Gentiles alike, for the obedience of faith. And if you were hearing this read to you, You know, at this point, I am ready to obey. I'm ready to obey. Paul, you've you've converted me and convinced me. I'm ready to obey. To God only wise. Who could have come up with all of that? Like he said in Romans chapter 11, who hath given to the Lord and then should be recompensed for it? No one's ever taught the Lord a thing. To God, only wise. We're the only ones that worship the only wise God. The gods of the heathen are idiots. By their, just read anything you want to read about them. I was talking to someone this week about the fact that when my first child was born in Ann Arbor, Michigan, a couple weeks later, there come the Mormons to my door. You know, they went to the hospital and found the records that Jonathan and Sherry Crosby had a baby. So there they are at the door. I said, give me that book. Come back in one week. Um, they don't have anything in that book. It's a plagiarism of a novel. It's ridiculous. We worship 
Yeah, I invited them into the house and we had a little chat about the Book of Mormon and about Moroni and the lost ten tribes of Israel that had gotten their little rowboats and rowed across the Atlantic and started all over, all over again. But we have the only wise God. Right. And in his wisdom, he's given us the kingdom along with the Jews. To God only wise, now to him. And he described all these things that God had done for the church at Rome, because they were Gentiles, along with the Jews that were members there. To this God be glory. And how do we give glory in the New Testament? In the Old Testament, you went through a priesthood. In the Old Testament, you went through animal blood. In the Old Testament, you went through all kinds of offerings, washings, purifyings, meats and drinks. What do we do in the New Testament? How do we bring God glory? Through Jesus Christ. He is our high priest. He has already made the one blood offering, his own blood. It was his body that was torn, not the bodies of animals. And so we come through Jesus Christ. And 1 Peter 2.5 tells us that that makes our sacrifices acceptable to God. Amen. Acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Amen. To God only wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. You know, when we read the word amen, I want you to remember its three definitions. Amen is a name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation 3.14. Amen means we assent and agree. 1 Corinthians 14.16. And amen means let it be so. Jeremiah 28 and verse 6. It's a, it's a word that occurs in every language on earth like that. It's a Hebrew word. Amen. The name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We agree with what we have just heard. Amen. I agree. Amen. Let it be so. Let it be true. That God, by His power, will establish us according to Paul's Gospel. According to the prophets of the Old Testament. Through Jesus Christ. Let me close with this about the epistle of Romans. What's your favorite verse? What's your favorite chapter? I'm going to give you one that I think summarizes the epistle to us. Turn to Romans chapter 8 in the middle of this epistle. And let me close with the first verse. This is the middle of the epistle. Chapters 9 through 11 are going to be about Israel. Chapters 12 through 16 are going to be practical. The first seven that have gone before this is how we are saved. There is, therefore, based on all that's gone before in this epistle to the Romans, there is therefore now, there's nothing else to be done because it's there already in place now. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. You need to ask yourself, are you in Christ Jesus? Because it's in Christ Jesus where there is no condemnation. Do you know how you know you're in Christ Jesus? It's chapters 6, 7, and 8. You have been baptized to rise, to walk in newness of life. And if you're not walking in newness of life, and if you're not walking after the Holy Spirit, 
There is no evidence that you are in Jesus Christ. And the lifting of condemnation off of you, it does not apply to you. To those that are in Christ Jesus. You know, we get in Christ Jesus by believing on Him. We get in Christ Jesus by being baptized in His name. And we put the Lord Jesus Christ on every day by putting on the new man and living according to Him. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. That is the wonderful message of the gospel. It is so easy to be in Christ Jesus and assure yourself that there's no condemnation upon you. But when you live for sin, when you live for the world, when you live for yourself, you're not in Christ Jesus. So we must ask ourselves, am I in Christ Jesus? Where there is now no further condemnation, all's been lifted through Christ Jesus. Now, because we use the King James Bible, there's a second half to this verse. If we were using the NIV or the ESV or some of the other corrupted, perverse versions of our generation, the second half of this verse isn't there. But it is there. So we have to meet it face on. And so it comes to us and it says, Who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And brethren, there is a summary of what the book of Romans has taught us in 159 sermons over four and a half years' time with some significant breaks in the middle. This is what God has taught us. There is, therefore, now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. It isn't Moses' law. It's not being born in Abraham's lineage. It is being in Christ Jesus. And the, the description and the evidence of those that are in Christ Jesus are those who walk not after the flesh. Your flesh is the sinful principles that are inside you that want to do things your way for your happiness because you are selfish rebel of God who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit, where we choose to humble ourselves to the Spirit of God and do His bidding that is found in the pages of Scripture and obey Him. Then there is therefore now no condemnation to that sort of person. And for the next 15 verses, the apostle explains in this chapter what it means to walk after the Spirit and not after the flesh. But this is a summary of the epistle that we have just left, where we saw the Amen at the end of Romans 16. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Oh, brethren, this is should not have been an intellectual exercise for us. Right. And we can't leave this epistle as an intellectual exercise, but as a gospel declaration of Jesus Christ's salvation for us and the way that we know that He died for us, the way that we know that we have been justified like Abraham was, is to walk after the Spirit and not after the flesh. May the Lord bless us to remember those first chapters filled with grace and packed with Jesus Christ's salvation. And may we as well remember chapters 6, 7, 8, 12, 13, 14, and how they describe how we ought to live. Because that's how we know that the condemnation's been lifted. It's been lifted! Make your calling and election sure. And the Lord will lead us to some other things to consider in the days to come. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word, and the 16 chapters of the Epistle to the Romans. Amen.